Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. Since the vicious attack on Israel on October 7th, it seems like the world has ground to a halt. In many ways, I have a hard time remembering things before October 7th. So much has changed in our world. Much of what was in the forefront of my mind has been shoved to the back, crowded out with worry and anguish and concern for the horror visited on the state of Israel, the calamitous rise in anti-Semitism, questions over moral clarity and moral failure, and how Israel can pursue a just war justly. At the same time, I am reminded of the necessity for life to continue, that the questions that had impressed me prior to the war have not gone away. And so while this podcast will continue to reflect on the unfolding challenges the war with Hamas presents, we will also turn to other essential questions that impact our consciousness. And perhaps there is no question more eternal than the one we will consider today. How do you raise a child? Every parent wants to know the key to success that will help a son or daughter thrive in life, that secret sauce for raising a healthy child. I think about our three children, all of whom are now in their 20s, and how each continues to grow and wrestle with who they are and who they want to be. And I can't help looking back and wondering about the choices I made as a father, the decisions Amy and I made as parents. Should we have done more of this, less of that? Parenting is that enigma that challenges everyone trying to raise a child. Guiding our children to embrace the values, principles, and ideals we hold dear while allowing them to explore their own unique selves, helping them navigate an ever more complicated world, teaching them how the real world works while not squelching their creativity, idealism, ingenuity, is complicated. Especially in our world today, parenting seems ever more complicated. We feel a need to keep our children safe, but also to equip them with the tools necessary to handle adversity and disappointment and all the challenges we know they will face. Yehuda Kohn is the father in spirit of the Beit el Ezraki Children's Home, a home for more than 200 children who can no longer live with their parents in Netanya in Israel. Yehuda is an educator and administrator who has dedicated his entire life to working with children and youth at risk both in Israel and in Brazil. Yehuda is not just an administrator. He wears multiple hats during his daily routine. He is the warm, embracing father. He is the producer, organizer, and manager. And on the one hand, he is the strict educator that instills values and sets clear boundaries for his children. And on the other, he is the figure who plants hope in their hearts. Despite the difficulties, Yehuda is a virtuoso in maneuvering through the multiple responsibilities, and the children love and respect him greatly. As the leader of Beit el Ezraki for more than 30 years, he and his wife Ricky raised their five children alongside hundreds of other children who lived at the campus over the years. The following conversation was recorded prior to the catastrophic attacks on the morning of October 7th on Simchat Torah. Yehuda has quickly adapted to supporting his community of young people, helping them initially with the challenges of returning to school online while the country dealt with the initial shock, as well as supporting the young men and women serving in the IDF who still call Beit el-Ezraki their home and Yehuda their father figure. Yehuda and his team at Beit el-Ezraki are shouldering an enormous burden, and this conversation still reminds us of what we as parents need to do 
to help our children grow and learn and thrive. It is a real pleasure to have Yehuda with us, and thank you for uh, joining us across the miles from the state of Israel, Yehuda. Thank you so much, Rabbi. It's a big honor to be here. Your story is really amazing. Tell us a little bit about how you came to Beit El Ezraki and what sort of sparked your own sort of quest, your own spiritual journey in helping to work with disadvantaged youth. I came to Beit Al-Zraki, we came to Beit Al-Zraki, my wife and myself, 34 years ago. Uh, since I was uh, a little child in my uh, young uh, age, I always understood that I'm really looking for the place of need and I want to make a difference over there. And uh, we went, I was a teacher, I was a vice principal, then we went to Brazil, and we are coming back from Brazil, and I see a small ad in the newspaper. A children's home is looking for a director. I knew that children are raised at home, but what is a children's home in Netanya? And it was children's home in Kibbutz. What is a children's home in a city? We decided to come and see, and then we walking into a lobby, and we see 37 young children, and we are asking, who are these children? And they tell us that these children were abandoned by their parents because of terrible stories, drugs, alcohol, mental illness. We were shocked. But this was our first shock. The real shock was when we understood that all of them are second and third generation of parents and grandparents, fathers and mothers and grandparents that grew up in the same environment. I was looking at my wife. She was looking at me. Is this is a genetical problem? No way. Something is done wrong. And then we decided to come here to Beit Azraki with two conditions. One, that they will let us to live with the children in the same house, which means that they will build us two rooms, one for my wife and myself, and one for our three children that we had in that time. And the second that I don't want to be a solution for the system. If they have a child somewhere that have a problem, that they will send him to me and I will give a solution to the system that they will find a place for him. I wanted to give a solution uh, really to the child, to make sure that this child will break the cycle of distress and to make sure that he will be successful because I am not a babysitter. So in your 34 years at Beit El-Ezraki, having worked with hundreds and hundreds of children, what are the essentials that you've discovered that a child needs to develop their full self so you can break that vicious cycle? Look, Rabbi, you use the word we as parents, we as parents, we as parents. And I believe that whoever have a child, he's a father, and she's a mother, but they are not parent yet. Parenting is not about bringing the child to the world, about having him. Parenting, it's about being there for him. And parenting have even no connection between parenting and biological connection of chromosomes. Parenting, it's about being there for him, and the child should understand that we see him all the time, and he should feel that we believe in him. 
That is parenting. Parenting is to be there for him forever. And you cannot fake it. You cannot fake it. The child have a sensors to feel if you are there for him, which means that I can do a parental work even though that I didn't bring these hundred children to the world. So when you think about you take a child who comes into your system and they are in many ways just wrapped up almost in garments of trauma, many of them. How do you begin to peel away those difficult layers that have been heaped upon that child through whatever they've experienced in their lives? And some of the things that you've shared with me over the years are just catastrophic stories of pain and anguish. How do you then begin to help that child discover their full selves? We developed a model that based on three-legged approach. And we are working with this model since day one that we came here. That the first most important thing is to fulfill the potential of the child. Each human being have a potential. is using between five to seven percent. Children at risk and even children who grow up in normal environment using only this percentage. We decided that our children have to use much more. They're going, they're waking up every morning and going to 27 different schools. My children are the best students of the city because they have a potential. We are working on this potential. When they come into school, they are the first one to raise their hands. They already feel their self-image is going very up. So this is the first thing that gives them a real feeling and trust in themselves. The second thing is, and that's most important, it's stability. Children at risk, and not only children at risk, don't feel stability. A home is stability. In English, it's very, very uh, special because you have two words, home and house. In Hebrew, you have only bite. There is no two words. House is a building and home is all the aspect of a place that you, you really feel good in. So stability is very, very important. A child who come to our home, even though that we come from this environment of severe, he understands that he found the home. We will be with him in daycare center, in kindergarten. We will take him to first grade. Happiest day of parents. Everyone come with mom or with dad or with both of them. My children are coming with me, with the social worker. And they are having tears in their eyes. They also want mom and dad. And we tell them, don't worry. We will be with you in first grade. We will tuck you into bed every night. We will be there to wake you up. We will do your birthdays. We will do bar and bat mitzvah. We will take you to the best high school because you are a good student. And when you finish high school, we will be there to take you to the army, to university. We will pay your tuition. We will be there. And when she will meet a boy or he will meet a girl, we will be and meet the other side. Whenever they will meet their partners, 
we will meet the other side, whatever they will give, we will give. We will walk them down the aisle. We walked already 97 children down the aisle. And when they will have children, and we have already 207 grandchildren, we are there. And that's a story. Everyone is asking until when you will be there. And I'm asking them until when you will be there for your children. The answer is forever. Parenting, as I said, it's not to bring them to the world. It's be their parents and be there for them. I never understood why in schools they say parent day. They should say father and mother days. A lot of people that coming to parent day in school, they are very busy with a lot of things, but not with being there for their children and not only being there physically, but to make sure that their children understand that they are there for them. So I'm hearing that dependability, stability is a major piece of the foundation that a child needs to be able to thrive. But And you talk uh, with such pride, like any father would, uh, about how your students are the best in the schools and everything. And I'm sure that when they start with you, that's not how it goes. That there's a process that leads them to feeling like I'm confident enough to raise my hand. I'm confident enough to try my best. I have released some of the things that have held me back, like anger, resentment, insecurities, all the different kinds of things. How do you work with children to get them to the place where they want to raise their hand? where they feel that sense of confidence. I hear that you promise them and that you demonstrate to them because they see it in all the other children that you're there for them forever and that dependability. But what else happens where you're helping that child to realize their potential? First of all, to love them, but real love, true love, and not only to say it. A child has sensors that he feels that it's not a one-time show, it's not a two-time show, it's really to be there, to go up when he goes to sleep, to be there when he wakes up. And I know that it's still hard for him. And we understand sometimes he comes here when he is in, in, uh, in a nine years old in fourth grade and he doesn't know how to read, but he has a potential. And I am telling him that we believe in it. When I say I, it's my more than 100 people on the staff. But we are there, and he knows that we're there and we love him. And if he fails, it's not a problem to fail. We tell them all the time. The story is what happening a second after you failing. If you know how to stand up, and if you know how to take our help to help you stand up. But he has to know. He has to feel that we are there and we see him and we are not giving up. And it comes in there. So to be seen, to be authentically seen, to be loved and to know that that love is there. I think you're right. I think children can tell that. Uh, They do have those sensors, as you say. But I think there is a question that a lot of parents ask, which is, how do I deploy love? 
right? So on the one hand, sometimes a parent will say, oh, the way I'm going to show love for my child is to try to be their best friend. Or the way I'm going to show love for my child is I'm going to provide them with every advantage I can provide. Or the way I'm going to show love for my child is to be there as, you know, as you've said, to tuck them in at night, to kiss their boo-boos, to give them love and support. When you think about how a parent shows love and how a parent deploys love, what role does structure and discipline play? What role does encouragement and nurturing play? Tell me sort of what your theory of love is in terms of child rearing. The first thing is to build borders that give him security, that he feels secure. Love for a child is to feel secure. When a child feels secure, he knows that he's in a good place. When we let him, when he thinks that I'm his friend, as the rabbi described friend, as I understand, he's not secure. He doesn't need a friend. He has a lot of friends. He needs someone that will build the borders, but not for him to feel bad, for him to feel secure. And yes, to explain him, to make him understand. And the most important is constantly to be there with the same borders and not one day one border, the other day the other border. You have to understand that the borders that we're building, they are after a lot of thoughts and that comes with love. Not that the love comes with borders, the borders are coming with love. And then it's really can be a win-win situation and the borders are bringing the discipline. But the discipline is not because you're angry and you want to read a book now and he's bothering you. The border is because to explain him that if he will build this border to himself, he will feel much more secure and tomorrow he will have a better tomorrow. Can you give me an example of some of the borders that you set at Beit El-Ezraki that helped to create that sense of security that you're describing? <laughs> Look, the easiest thing today, it's our media. The media is uh, really not easy today with the children. And when I'm speaking of media, especially, they're doing it through the cell phones. When we are having an agreement together that we're sharing what happening in our cell phones, I'm sharing with them my cell phone, they're sharing with me their cell phone, and there is a border what you can do and what you cannot do. And it's very, very hard, but it needs a lot, a lot of work on that. I'm speaking about doing homework, not because I have to do it, because it makes me, my my self-image much better. I'm speaking about going to sleep in time because that will give me a better day tomorrow. There are so many little things, and really the most important is the little thing, to keep my room in order. It will make me know where every single thing is. But yes, to speak about it. And children want 
us as parents to speak with them, not to ask them to do things, to speak with them. And when we are speaking with them, which means that it takes time from us, and we need to invest time in speaking with them, because in that moment that we're speaking with them, they understand that we're seeing them and we are there for them. The lesson that I always think about is we often refer to the Holy One as Avinu Malkinu, as our parent, right, as a ruler. And I think about how the formative story, the, the core narrative of who we are as people is so parental in its structure, this idea of God caring for us like a parent. And one of the things that I always talk with teenagers about is when God gets one chance, one and only one chance to speak to all of the children of Israel together at Mount Sinai, what does God use that time for? You know, that's a big sermon, right? That's a that's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. What does God use that for? An introduction. Hi, I'm the Holy One. I'm the one that just led you out of the land of Egypt. And here are all the boundaries and borders that you have to follow. And it's interesting. Whenever you talk to children, you say, who are the people who say they love you the most? They'll say, my parents. And you'll say, good. Who are the people who tell you what to do the most? They'll say, my parents. And then I'll say, well, how many of you really like being told what to do? And most of them say not very much because they're teenagers. But then when you unpack it with them, they realize that that guidance of telling you what to do and what not to do is the greatest expression of love a parent can give. And what I hear you saying, which to me is so compelling, is it's not just about barking orders. It's not just about establishing the limits. It's the conversation around those limits. Because why does God set these rules for us? Not just so God can express power over us, but it's because of the intensity of God's love that God knows that if we follow that path laid out for us, we'll be so much happier and we'll be more able to realize our potential than we ever would trying to dream up our own systems. I love this idea, Yehuda, that you talk about in this idea that it's not just about do this because I'm telling you the rules. It's because I'm telling you these rules because I love you. And because if your room is clean, you'll have such a greater sense of pride and you will know where your things are. And if you hand in your homework, you're going to feel so much better every day in class because you won't have that anxiety of, oh my gosh, I didn't do my assignment or any of those different kinds of things about setting boundaries and rules. And at the same time, I wonder, Yehuda, you know, what is a parent's role in making it a little easier for a child? So your children have gone through, in many cases, really, really difficult, challenging elements and, and even abandonment where no one was advocating for them, where no one was caring about the path. And I think that there's a temptation that we all have as parents to sort of make it easy, right? There's a there's a a, a trend that we read about so much of helicopter parenting, where anytime our child experiences any distress, we swoop in like a helicopter and rescue them, or we go to battle for them, or we uh, make sure they don't experience any stress or anguish or discomfort. Tell me, in your experience, you know, how should a parent advocate for a child? When should a parent sort of 
back off and let a child learn from their experience? And when should a parent go to battle for their child uh, so the child knows that they have an advocate? Most, thank God, most of the time we have more than one child. And the story is not to treat them the same. Every child in the world have weaknesses and strengths. To find what is a weakness and what is a strength, not to push in the moment, in the things that we think that the child is weak on, because we cannot change it. And not to accomplish things that we wanted to accomplish as children and to do it with our children. Really to see, okay, the child is weak in that, but he has so many other things that he's strong in, let's go this way. And really, really to know it. And it's okay if my child is weak in something. And it's really great. First of all, we don't, we never know what changed a life of a child. We never know when it will change a life of a child. And that's why we have to do it in a way that God forbid it shouldn't hurt him. So I think about how different what we expect of children is versus what makes for oftentimes successful adults. So when kids are little, we expect them to be great generalists. They've got to get A's in every subject, right? They've got to be good at math and they have to be good at language and they have to be good at science and they have to be good at history and the social sciences. And we always celebrate a child who gets straight A's, right? Because they're good at everything. But in life, you don't really need to be good at everything. You need to be really good at one thing. And sometimes figuring out what you're not good at is the best lesson you can learn. I think one of the best things that ever happened to me was all the C's I got in chemistry, which taught me that that was definitely not gonna be a good path for me. And it taught me that maybe the humanities uh, or social science was gonna be a far better reflection of my core capacities. That's why your community is so lucky. Oh, you're sweet. <laughs> How do we sort of help a child to realize it's okay not to be great at everything when so much of the lessons or the expectations of society when they're young is you need to be good at everything? Yes, but the story is that we have to give him really the strength that his self-image will go up. Self-image is not only going up with A's. Self-image is going up when he sees the parent believe in him. If the parent believe in him, so it doesn't matter really the A or C. Maybe he won't feel so good to have seen chemistry, but my father believed, my parents believe in me, my dad believe in me, my mom believe in me, so all the rest is really, really okay. I don't have to come home with a friend because I'm afraid what my dad will tell me, and you know, with a friend, he won't tell me nothing. So the story is I can come home by myself and say, look, I have a problem with chemistry, I have C, but I did the maximum. And then, you know, and the father will hug him. That's really parental action. So what I love about that model is the idea that kids are looking for validation. And so they're either going to get a validation from the school because they're gonna get a grade that says, hey, you did great. 
or they're going to get validation from home from their parents who are going to give them a hug and a kiss and love and say, I'm proud of you. And that the validation they get at home is more important than necessarily the validation they get from a report card. 100%. You will become a much better human being, a much better person, a much better parent by himself, the child will come if he will get this evaluation from home. You often speak, Yehuda, when we visit Beit el with our groups from the synagogue of the importance of helping kids realize self-respect. Uh, and you talk about the special laundry soap that you use there. Tell me a little bit about how you help children develop their sense of self-respect. The story is really to give the children the opportunity to see themselves. And if you are not there only to criticize or only to tell what to do, as we spoke before, but you are there to give them, to be their role model, how you're supposed to be, it's really give them an understanding what the right thing. Unfortunately, I cannot give them all the role modeling because the role modeling today it's piercing here and this there and there there to look this way or another but and they think that this is what will make them really really very unique and special but we are there really to show them what the right way to be and to show themselves and what other people will see i will give you one example we are doing over here every year a show that we're bringing in one dress this way, the other one dress, dress a different way, and another one that dress really like crazy, and another one is not clean, and another one, and we're starting to ask them, what do you think about number A? What do you think about number B? And who do you think that he's a lawyer? Very easy. 90% are sure that the lawyer is the one who dress in this way and the butcher is the one who dress in this way, even though that all of them have great profession. And we don't teach them what kind of profession you have to have, but we teach them what that the outside means for others. And yes, we are very proud when a teacher calls us up to ask us, what kind of softening we use in the laundry. Because a child who has a good smell, parents don't realize that. And he goes to school with a good smell in his clothes, the teacher is getting closer to him. And in the second that the teacher is getting closer to him, his self-image is going up. And the next day is important for him. And that's a story of role modeling and of living in a place that things are constantly done the same. So I know that Beit El-Ezraki is a religious institution, but not all of the children that come to you come from religious homes. And so tell me about the value of ritual and the religious life that you have at Beit El-Ezraki. In what way does that help a child to, uh, to heal, uh, or to discover themselves, what is the value uh, that you see in a, a ritual life or in the religious life that people live at Beit El-Ezraki? How does that contribute to a child discovering their spiritual selves? 
to be religious in Bet al-Azraqi or for a graduate in the end to be religious, it's not our goal. Not at all. I said from the beginning, our goal is one, that he will be incredible parent to his children. We are not teaching religion. And that's the story of Bet al-Azraqi. We have a religious ambience. And you, Rabbi, with the community, with the synagogue, were here a few times. The ambience is religious. You saw that one guy is saying the blessing in the end of the meal. But you see children that are saying, you see children that are not saying, but the ambience is one. And we believe that the religious ambience can give really a special feeling. So there are children, we have, the, 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 we have over here nine campuses. One of the campuses is the campus of the soldiers. So you have rooms, religious rooms, that they're behaving in a certain way, let's say in Shabbat, and you have a room that is not religious and they behaving a different way on Shabbat, but in the center, everyone have the respect, which means that in the center, no one will open the TV in the middle, in, in, the, in the lobby where everyone is coming. But in his room, if he wants to open, it's not a problem. And the story is really to respect each other, even though that you sing differently. So that's our religion ambience over here, that it's really, really give them a, an incredible feeling that we can live in the same home. And the sukkah today, we have a sukkah, by the way, on all the basketball court that we were sitting together. So all the basketball, there is, is a sukkah. Inside this sukkah, you can be religious, you can be secular, you can be whatever you want, but you belong to one nation. And that's what we feel. What a beautiful model for the entire state of Israel, if they could figure out how to fit all the religious and secular and those in between under one Sukkot Shalom. Uh, but I also see when you have religious ritual, it sets you up for moments where all of those parenting gems that you were describing happen organically. And so if you want to teach a child gratitude, then you introduce them to the idea that you say a blessing after a meal to say, hey, thanks for this meal that we had. If you want to create moments where you're validating your love and being letting your children know that you're seeing them, there is nothing more beautiful than gathering them in close when you light candles and say Kiddush on Friday night to pull your kids close and to bless them and to say, I see you. Here's what I'm proud of you for this week. And when you have those regular opportunities within the structure of religious life, it's not an imposition that curbs, it's a guidepost that sort of puts you in a place where you can be the kind of parent you want to be, where you can create those intimate moments where your children feel really seen. If you create a Shabbat dinner environment where you put the phones away and you turn the television off and there's no electronics around and you say, let's have a real conversation. Tell me what's happening in your life. Tell me what's going on. Let me tell you how proud I am of you. Let me help you work through a problem if you want to share it with me. 
those kinds of things that I think religious life provides in a parenting environment in many ways are much more difficult to fashion without it. In your, if you're trying to create something in your own kind of made up ritual life of a family. And I would imagine that working with your children, that the rituals are in many ways those things that create that dependent, that sense of, of safety that a child feels because they know the routine. Is that something that you see as you help children acculturate to Beit El-Ezraki? Oh, wow. Rabbi, thank you so much for putting on all these uh, such a spotlight. You know, sometimes you're leaving something and you're feeling that it's for granted because this is life. But yes, exactly what you said now, this is really what happening here. And really Shabbat, that when we are sitting together, this is a time that so many things are happening. <laughs> you remind me of this Shabbat, you know, we, we spoke about the last three parshas that spoke about being grateful to, to God for, for all what he did for us, and even if, for the first fruit to take it up to Jerusalem and to be grateful. And, and we spoke about how important is really to be grateful for things that happening to you, but how important is that when you are grateful also to say it. And then I told them, you know what? When you're coming back from school, you're passing my office. You're lifting up your hand. What about knocking on the door and saying, I'm in a hell, the director. That's the way they call me over here. We love you. And they were looking at me. What do you mean? And I told, what do you think that only you needs me to tell you that I love you? I needed the same. It was so nice. Not everyone, but it was so nice to see the children. Some of them came in only because I said, and I said, stop. What do you mean? And then, you know, it started to, but it's made, created such a very, very important and special ambience that we spoke about it. And then we came up with the idea that so many people knows about it, that you have to be grateful and think about good things that happen to you because there is a big research in positive psychology that if you're thinking about five good things that happen to you every day before you go to sleep, your sleep is better, your physical condition is better, and certainly your emotional things are better. And really, Akara Satov, to be grateful is so, so important. And there is no such a thing that you don't have five things, that good things that happen to you every day, even to find a parking lot. I don't know how it's in Florida, but in Tel Aviv, to find a parking lot, it's like five good things that happen to you. Uh, not as bad in Boca as it is in Tel Aviv, for sure, to find a parking space, that there are times that one might say a, a special bracha for that. You know, I think that idea of reminding children that parenting and that relationship with a parent goes both ways is so important that the child is just not the one who's always on the receiving end either of rebuke or of love, but that, hey, that can go, that needs to be returned uh, is such a beautiful thing. And the idea that we have to teach our kids gratitude and appreciation that helps to build their self-esteem that also helps to build their souls also 
let me ask you, Yehuda, uh, as you know, uh, that the title of this podcast is called Essential Questions. What would you say are the essential questions you're asking yourself these days? I never ask myself if I was successful, but I always ask myself if I did the right things. And that helps me. Because if you're all the time striving and looking for success, it will be very hard. But if you feel that you did the right things, and if you take really advices how to do the right things, and you feel that you did it, so that gives me a lot, a lot of secure and really build uh, my personality. But every day, in the end of the day, I'm really checking uh, if I did the right thing. And that's a question that I'm asking myself. And I really believe that success is already in the hand of God. And there is another question that is making me so busy. What is the right thing to do with our children when they grow up, that they should be connected to their environment and they should find out what the environment and what their environment needs, and they really should do it. And that's, I understand that in the age of 18, when they grow up sometimes, or most of the time, it's too late. So I'm asking myself every day, what I can do to this little child that when he will be 18, 20, 25, when he will be married, when he will be a father, how he will do the right things. But I'm doing it already when he's really little child. And I think that that role modeling of teaching a moral compass and helping children learn how to navigate moral questions and how to stand up and do the right thing, even when it's not popular or even when it's inconvenient, is something that not only do we as children have to nurture, but I think it's something we need to nurture, as you say, all the way through our lives. Yehuda, I'm so grateful for you spending time with us. I'm always grateful for the time and the incredible hospitality you show us when we visit. I would encourage anyone, uh, make it your business to go to Netanya and to see the remarkable work that Beit El-Ezraki does. If you want to learn more about Beit El-Ezraki, you can visit their website, elazraki.org, E-L-A-Z-R-A-K-I.org. And you can learn all about this remarkable institution and their wonderful Minahel, their incredible leader. Uh, Yehuda, I certainly look forward to seeing you when our congregation visits this summer. And I just wish you lots of hatzlacha, lots of success and fulfillment as you continue with your remarkable journey. The Essential Questions podcast has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, and Susan Stallone. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Beth El's website at tbeboka.org slash essential questions. Share this podcast with your friends. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And we want to know, what are your essential questions? Let us know by emailing us at eq at tbeboka.org. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin. Thanks for listening to the Essential Questions podcast.